Portugal's far-right movement builds up steam. An ambitious urban garden gets the green light, and last Wednesday's DC demonstrations hit Trump's bottom line. Monocle's editors tackle these topics today on the late edition, here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition. I'm Augustin Machelari, joined today in studio by Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck and by Monocle 24's own Carlotta Rabello, who's recently returned from her home country of Portugal and is safely back in London. Welcome both to the programme. Carlotta, it's a shame that you're not with us in studio today, but I'm extremely envious that you've not only been away and made it back, but that you've been on a plane recently. Can you paint us a quick picture of what you left behind in Madeira? I know, I had almost forgotten what it was like to be uh, on an airplane and going through an airport. Uh, certainly, uh, it's not back to normal, uh, but it was n- just nice to leave London and leave the same house that we've m- I've been confined for most of the year. Um, and in Madeira, the weather was lovely. The temperature was between 14 degrees and 20 degrees. I don't want to make you jealous, but it was really lovely. And just to be at home, seeing family, going on a lot of hikes. And I might even say that I went to the beach maybe once or twice. Oh, that's not fair. Andrew, you must be delighted to have uh, Carlotta back, your producer on The Urbanist. What have you got planned for the programme this year? I haven't got a clue. I did say to Car- Carlotta, we, we should probably have a bit of a catch-up, which we're planning to do this week. So luckily we recorded a couple of shows to get us through to here. I think the interesting thing for us is, you know, that there's a lot of things going on in the city space, some of which we're going to touch on even in this show. Lots of people coming out with very adventurous plans. We just have to see what sticks. It's, it's always interesting in a moment of crisis that people talk a, a big game of change and revolution. And actually, when things calm down, what stays and what falls away will be interesting. So we spoke to lots of people last year about you know, their plans and their ambitions and, and, and how they thought the city was going to be resilient. I think it's going to be time for the urbanists now to kind of not just focus on the pandemic, but, but look at the stuff that's, that's actually happening and be a little bit more real about what we really think is going to happen. Because you, know, you walk out the front door here, you, it's, it's, it's a tough old city out there. But even now, I think, you know, Give it you know, a, a bit of a, a virus-free couple of months and it would go back to something more like normal. So we'll, we'll see what happens in the coming months. But there's certainly lots for the show to cover. Indeed. And we will be covering some of what sticks a little bit later on on this programme, as you said, Andrew. Um, we're going to get to the first story in just a moment. But first, let's hear from our news editor, Chris Chermack, who has a quick update on this situation in the US, where Democrats have announced their plans to pursue impeachment proceedings for US President Donald Trump. Augustin, Democrats formally introduced, as was expected, two resolutions today aimed at removing Donald Trump from office. One is a resolution calling on Vice President Pence Uh, to invoke the 25th Amendment of the Constitution. That essentially involves him uh, involving the cabinet in an effort to remove the president from office. The second is articles of impeachment, specifically for inciting insurrection. All of this is over the takeover of the U.S. Capitol by protesters last week that Trump is accused of inciting himself. This would, of course, make Trump the first president ever to be impeached twice while in office. I have to say the odds are that neither of these efforts will remove him from office before Joe Biden takes over on uh, the 20th of January very shortly. In just one bit of other news for you, Og, late breaking news, Joe Biden just received his second dose of the coronavirus vaccine. It's apt to mention that, uh, I thought, particularly as the president-elect has not actually said whether he'll support impeachment of Trump. 
He'd really rather just prefer to get on with governing, particularly confronting the pandemic. Augustin? Thanks, Chris, for that. And we will have more on that story across our news programmes here on Monocle 24. Well, we'll begin in Portugal, which is looking ahead to an election at the end of this month. On the 24th of January, the country will head to the polls. An easy win for incumbent President Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa is predicted, but it's not all roses. Opinion polls have 37-year-old André Ventura, founder of the far-right populist party Chega, Portuguese for enough, winning as much as 10% of the vote. In 2019, Mr Ventura became the first far-right candidate to win a seat in the Portuguese National Parliament since the end of Portugal's dictatorship in 1974, a shock to a country with a more muted right-wing presence than elsewhere in Europe. The rest of Europe has, however, taken notice. Over the weekend, Mr Ventura was joined on the campaign trail by Marine Le Pen, leader of France's Rassemblement National, which was formerly the Front National. Carlotta, could you put this in context for us? Where's this support coming from? So Andrew Ventura had been a member of uh, PSD. This is the centre-right social democratic uh, party, uh, which has been in government for several years. The government in Portugal has been between that party and then the centre-left party, the socialists. So he is, has been this kind of politician that has been always working in the background. Uh, but since he left uh, his position as the mayor of the city of Lourdes, which is just outside Lisbon, he pivoted towards a more um, well far-right approach to his party, uh, uh, creating this new party, Chega. Um, and his uh, supporters right now can be found mostly uh, in big urban areas, but also in the south of the country. We're talking about the regions of Alentejo and Algarve. Um, Alentejo has traditionally been an area of the country um, known for you know, farming uh, and having a lot of land. A lot of these people who felt that they got a bit shortchanged after the dictatorship and a lot of the land was nationalized, privatized uh, and just kept changing hands for a couple of years while the country kind of figured out what to do once the revolution was done. Um, so he managed to gather a lot of supporters there. And then a lot of people within the Social Democrats, um, so this is the center-right party, um, felt felt that the party was pivoting, well, away from the centre and more towards the left, which is not really true, uh, but that's the way they were seeing it. So having such a, a divisive figure as André Ventura coming in to the national scene, um, portraying um, this picture of a country that is not really true to, you know, he talks about having a broken health system, national health system, which... All national health systems have its failures, and port the Portuguese one works actually rather well when you consider, you know, the budget of the country, uh, the amount of people, everything that has been going on in, in the country can't compare it to bigger nations. So he has managed to get people, I wouldn't say trapped, but caught into this rhetoric that doesn't necessarily represent the country, but has a lot of people believing it does, making the problem seem much worse uh, than reality. Mm. I was interested that you mentioned there the Alentejo and the Algarve as well. So it's fair to say that his uh, support is fairly regional rather than being distributed across the sort of cross-section of Portuguese society. 
Yes, but it's enough to make a dent. And we saw the first example of that, well, when he first got his um, the only seat of his party in, in the parliament. And earlier this year, uh, at the end of November, when his party was able to enter into a coalition agreement in the archipelago of the Azores, um, which was the first time ever that his the party had any saying in terms of governance. And we need to remember the Azores, uh, also like Madeira, the two archipelagos in Portugal, they're autonomous regions. I guess the biggest similarity would be to the devolved nations here in the United Kingdom. They have autonomy uh, towards their own, most of their own um, laws. Um, they have their own parliament um, elected members. So earning a position in a regional government is a big, big deal. And this happened just a few months before this presidential election, which even though Ventura won't win, if he gets the second place, Portugal is flirting with the far right in a way that will be dangerous when we get we get to the mayoral elections and then the legislative elections um, next time around. Andrew, Mr. Ventura came to prominence as a commentator on Portuguese tabloid TV station uh, CMTV. Over the past four years, we've heard a lot about the role of Fox News in US society, and there's also plans to launch uh, a new sort of right-wing tabloid media company here in the UK. Do you think that the social impact of these sorts of broadcasters in giving these sorts of people a platform, familiarising the public with their kind of ideas, the way they speak and communicate, have we understated it in the past? Is it something that maybe we we need to be a little more alert to? Well, I think you have to be cautious. You know, these people, you know, they're not only stoking fear. They're not only throwing it back at people and and causing trouble. They do represent often on air a constituency. And the idea of of, of the the liberal elite and and the left to kind of shut them all down can be counterproductive. If, if you're if you move into a position where you you could tell every every kind of mainstream access point for these people to talk about the things they're, they're they're thinking and for the rest of us to engage with them, then what happens is you push them more and more to the periphery. So we're we're seeing at the moment this notion that Parler, which is a very popular a social media site that's very popular with people on 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 the right in the US. How popular, but it is popular with some people on the right in the US. Everyone's trying to close down its platforms, trying to deny access. We've seen President Trump uh, lose his Twitter account. And I think it's interesting that there's a great hurrah that went up around that. And it was at last these sites were were doing the right thing and they were, were understanding they were publishers and they had social responsibilities. But cut to Monday, and it's interesting how many people are already saying, actually, in the centre ground and on the left saying, actually, I'm, I'm beginning to feel a little bit uncomfortable about this. You know, the, the notion of free speech is important. And if you're going to have it, then you have to offer it to everyone. So, fine, he, he came up through some TV site. If you close down these TV sites, if you didn't allow these people access, they would, they would come up in some other way. And in a way, maybe at least they're tested a little bit by being on these platforms. I'm not sure that closing down debate is, a, is ever really successful. Mm. Meanwhile, Marine Le Pen has been over there helping out. And you do see a lot of this kind of networking, these support systems, or at least a lot of it reported amongst a European uh, right-wing movements. Is that a kind of unfortunate or you know, fortunate, depending on 
on where you sit on the political spectrum byproduct of this pan-European project? Is it kind of the rough that we have to take with the smooth? Uh, again, I think we, we, we read too much into these things. Of, of course they're going to see each other. They've got things in common. You know, We expect democratic leaders to cross borders and go and see each other. We're, we're not su- surprised with you know the great movements of, you know, of the far left, of the communists. You know, of course they all came together for the, you know, the internationalities, you know, for these, these meetings of people with like-minded opinions. People who have political views come together, um, whether that's across borders or not. So don't be panicked by that. that that's, that's, that's always what politicians have done. And, uh, OK, maybe, maybe their intent isn't always the best. But we would certainly not have been surprised, you know, if you know, a, 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 a proper socialist leader like, I don't know, Jeremy Corbyn had gone to meet fellow socialist leaders in Cuba, we'd have thought, of course he would. That, that's, that's the nature of the game. And I think we, we, again, we often have some rules for the people in, in the middle and on the left. And then when we see people on the right doing it, then it causes all sorts of alarm. So I'm, I'm not scared by that. that. That's just politics. A useful reminder, I think. Well, look, let's move along now to Paris. That was Joe Dassin there with his lovely song about one of the world's most iconic cities, most iconic avenues. The Champs-Élysées has rather lost its luster over the last three decades, but its fortunes are set to change. Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo has okayed plans to restore the city's iconic Champs-Élysées to more than its original glory and turn it into a 1.2-mile-long urban garden. Vehicle access will be reduced by 50%, which is welcome news given that its eight lanes currently host on average 3,000 vehicles every hour. Andrew, to start with you, I think that residents of older cities will be familiar with this kind of phenomenon, which is that, you know, streets or areas become well-known, they become popular tourist destinations. But there's also this kind of corollary, which is this high volume of traffic that becomes uh, problematic, pollution, noise. Does it stem from a lack of foresight from urban planners when our cities were being sort of reverse engineered for motorised vehicle access? Well, it's it's, it's a complex bag of things because one of of the things you need is is a great landlord. So here in London, you, you have this interesting juxtaposition of you know oxford street this huge long artery which is is known around the world as a great shopping street and there are some you know some good stores along there there's there's anchor tenants like selfridges which are you know undoubtedly successful retailers but it's full of a lot of old rubbish and there's a lot of old rubbish aimed at tourists and then you have a, a you know another road that bisects it which is regent street where you have the crown estate mostly who have managed it pretty well so you have buildings on a similar scale where where, where one is still an attraction and one isn't. So first of all, it's who's running it. So you have to be careful of that. But also, these buildings were built for a time of you know going out to window shop for uh, shopping as a, a great experience. And even in for decades, not just now, that has edged away a little bit. You know, that you, you don't go for a Sunday stroll to look in the shop windows there are many more forms of entertainment. So many of these buildings are just on the wrong scale. So the problem for the Champs-Élysées is that it looks magnificent, but many of the, the cafes are just so epic and big. They, they don't feel, they don't attract us in the way they used to. And many of the store spaces are so big that they're now used for car showrooms. So it's a bit of a schlep to walk up you know, the Champs-Élysées in the summer and it's on a hot day and there's a bit of shading from the trees already. But you walk past car showroom and then slightly terrible cafe. There's no reason to be there. So that's where people disappear to like 
cuter neighbourhoods like the Marais. So this idea of greening it up, taking away some of the traffic, I think is positive. There is also already quite a, a, a lot of greenery there. But the problem is is adding in some scale on, along that road because unless they add in more kiosks, again, there are some kiosks, if they, unless they add in a bit cuter kind of re- retail, then you're going to be stuck with the, these epic spaces that people don't quite know what to do. And then suddenly you have a Disney store or you have a kind of an experience kind of showground. So I, th- I think it's, it's a wise move. And what's interesting is what happens around the Arc de Triomphe, which is going to become a, a kind of a, a pedestrian area. And that could be amazing. It takes away those iconic images we've seen from 50s and 60s films of people racing around the Arc de Triomphe in escaped movies and, and heists and things. So all positive, but it, it's, it's about more than putting in some trees. It's about scale and it's about flexibility. Carlotta, this isn't the first uh, time a European urban garden has inspired excitement. I remember very vividly when London's Garden Bridge was first announced that it was kind of celebrated by people really from across the political spectrum, but then became known as one of uh, the then mayor, uh, now Prime Minister Boris Johnson's uh, kind of great follies. Did that put other metropolitan leaders off similar projects, do you think? And does success in Paris, if um, Anne Hidalgo uh, succeeds with this, stand to inspire other city leaders who are maybe looking to kind of re-engage with these with these streets that have undergone this process that Andrew has just described and make them a bit more kind of livable again? I think the example of the Garden Bridge uh, here in London uh, really highlights what Andrew just mentioned. Sometimes it's not about the the project itself and how great it is, but you need to have good leadership. And the fact that a bridge that was never built cost over £53 million, um, it's not a good sign for anyone who was behind that project. I mean, earlier this year, and of course, it's easy, um, earlier last year, I mean, 2020. And of course, it's easy to for us to pair things together with COVID and people walking more in cities and using their own cars less. But even Barcelona announced plans for, you know, the neighbourhood of a shampoo, which is... Um, known for its famous basically city blocks that um, intersected some by parks, other, most of them by roads, to turn it mostly into a green space as well. Uh, they didn't pitch it as creating a giant urban garden, but that's essentially what it's going to be once the walkability levels go up, uh, the trees are in place and people start using the space uh, in a different way. Um, I honestly think examples like this that we're seeing uh, from Paris really do depend on the people's trust in a mayor. And Anne Hidalgo has put forward throughout her tenure a lot of bold ideas that maybe 10 years ago people would say it would be impossible for them to go through. But the fact that she, you know, inspires confidence and people have seen the results of some of them, um, you know, the introduction of cycle lanes, over 60 kilometres of them to get just to start off at the beginning of the pandemic last year. Um, People saw the results of that almost immediately. So it is easy for or it's easier, I should say, for a mayor to um, be successful with bolder ideas when they already have a good track record behind them. 
Well, finally, we almost made it today, but unfortunately we will have to turn once more to the States, where it's good news for fans of schadenfreude, at least. The PGA of America, the Professional Golf Association, has announced that one of its biggest championships will no longer be held at Donald Trump's Bedminster Golf Course in 2022. The PGA cites the events of last Wednesday as the reason the tournament will be played elsewhere. Carlotta, sorry in advance for this, but they've got him by the golf balls, haven't they? Is this going to I don't even know how to answer that, Og. Honestly, the only thing I have to say is if it took the events of last Wednesday for brands and associations to start thinking, hmm, maybe Donald Trump uh, is not that great after all, I really wonder what what they've been looking at and reading over the past four years. The fact that it takes a mob to storm the Capitol building for people to be like, oh, yeah, now that's too far. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's because we uh, cover this all the time. But um, it is it, just for me. It's insane now the amount of brands that are trying and associations that are trying to make keep some distance to uh, Donald Trump and his brand um, when that should have been happening all along. Conversely, and just quickly, Andrew, though, I do think, you know, we, while cultural institutions, sporting organisations like this do wield a considerable amount of soft power, you know, they do often face criticism. I think of the cultural institutions who face criticism for maybe accepting money from the Sackler family, which has been linked to America's opioid crisis. Do you think that it's a bit unfair to demand that these sorts of institutions or organisations make this kind of political statement by disowning this sort of individual or donations from this sort? We know, particularly with cultural institutions, how tight money can be. It puts them in a difficult position, doesn't it? No, I don't think so, actually. I think it's, it's, it's especially for cultural organisations, where you, if you're public-facing, saying that you're an inclusive organisation, that you're out to campaign for a fairer world, and that the, the kinds of people you're representing, especially for you know, an art gallery, a museum, and the world of sport, when we see so many kind of difficulties for for people rising up through their ranks if in in the background that you're colluding or working with or or partnering with somebody or an organization that works against those those very tenets of your of your claims then then i think it's fair that you get called out and you know donald trump is interesting because you obviously it's going to hurt him this because he loves golf you know we had some rumors he might fly over here the minute he kind of loses his his position of power in in dc to try and play a round up in scotland and nicholas sturgeon was one of the first to say please don't come but you know he likes golfers and he likes the world of golf and oddly seem to be pretty close to tiger woods for example but i think it's right that he isn't allowed to host this because Again, whether you're, you know, uh, if you're providing a service, if you're offering to, be, to host something like this, then you should say, look, I believe in all the things that you're, you're, you're offering to your members and to your audience around the world. And it's clear that Donald Trump doesn't want to offer those things. So if you're not in it for the, the full remit, then you should step away. Well, on that note, that is all we have time for, for today's late edition. A very big thank you to Andrew Tuck and Carlotta Rebello here in London, and to all our editors today, as well as our studio managers, Steph Chungu and Sam Impey. I'm Augusta Machilari here at Midori House in London. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for being with us. 